Well, turn with me to Song of Solomon chapter 5. And while you're finding Song of Solomon 5, we'll go backwards a month or so and talk about Christmas. In Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, the miserly and selfish Ebenezer Scrooge goes home on Christmas Eve to his cold apartment and he's seemingly visited by the ghost of his dead business partner, Jacob Marley. Marley has come to warn Scrooge that if he, if he doesn't mend his greedy and self-serving ways, his punishment in the afterlife will be terrible. And that night in his sleep, Scrooge is visited by three ghosts. The ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of Christmas yet to be. Supposedly showing him the results of continuing in his horrible ways and how people will be so relieved at Scrooge's death someday because of how terribly he treated everyone around him. Well, in the story, Scrooge wakes up to find that it's Christmas Day and he rushes out as a changed man to treat the other characters in the story with love and kindness and appreciation and he is given a second chance. Now, we're not going to take any theological direction from A Christmas Carol. It's a story of self-redemption, which is not possible. The changed inner self that the Christian experiences is due to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins. You received a new heart, a new mind to love, honor, and serve God. But A Christmas Carol does bring up an interesting concept. Wouldn't it be nice if you did most of your sinning in your dreams and then you wake up determined not to do those things that you dreamed about? And in real life, you changed your ways. Well, that is actually the exact situation we come to in Song of Solomon 5. We come once again to the young couple, Solomon and Shulamith. It's sometime after their wedding. We said potentially several years have gone by. And Solomon presents this section in the form of a dream that Shulamith has. And perhaps it was to protect her reputation as he writes this poem and addresses the very real nature of what we started talking about last week, marital apathy. And you remember from last time we saw that marital apathy is a symptom or a form of spiritual apathy, of being unmindful of the enemy that's at the door that wants to wreak havoc in your marriage, in your life. We talked about what spiritual apathy, what marital apathy looks like. Being reminded for last time, we, we said it's a disconnect between your walk with Christ and your marriage. That, that somehow my walk with Christ happens when I read my Bible, when I pray, when I go to church, and my marriage is in a different universe. That's marital apathy. That's, that's wrong. We also saw that marital apathy happens when there's a lack of taking seriously the scriptural admonitions of marriage. That God doesn't give us the commands concerning marriage just for our interest or for some sort of addendum. That a husband who truly has just quit trying to love his wife as Christ loves the church and instead just endures her, that's marital apathy. A wife who stops trying to respect her husband stopped a long time ago and now just treats him like one of the children, that's marital apathy. Forgetting that marriage is called in 1 Peter 3 the grace of life. Settling into a routine of unspoken resentments, unresolved conflicts, sinful patterns that you've just decided is easier to live with than to deal with. 
And we looked at the third sign of marital apathy, a loss of the passionate love with which you started. The loss of that passionate love that it's been years since you've daydreamed about spending time with the other, that compliments are now few and far between, that cut downs and jokes about enduring your marriage are now par for the course. And sadly, that infiltrates the church in so many levels that maybe you can't remember the last time you made a conscious choice to think positive and thankful and delightful thoughts toward your spouse as commanded by Scripture. And we said last time that apathy in some ways hurts more than anger or overt sins against each other because apathy says, I really just don't care anymore. And this is really almost a step beyond anger or passion. At least with anger or passion, there's a reason for it. But apathy says, you just aren't that special to me anymore. Sure, I'll be faithful and I'll put on the show of a decent marriage. But the truth is that you just aren't that important to me. Where does spiritual apathy start? I think it's safe to say that spiritual apathy in marriage starts with little gestures. Small times of not trying quite so hard anymore. Of not pursuing your love quite like you used to. We said last time that for every married couple... Every young couple that says, well, that will never happen to me. There's at least one other older couple that says, yeah, that's what we said. We would say that apathy is dangerous because if you even give the impression of apathy, it can hurt the other so deeply that then there will be an actual withdrawal of affection, of closeness. The distance is easier than that feeling of constant rejection from the one that you love more than anyone. And this, of course, This distance creates the slippery slope of many other sins. Sins ranging from just daily irritability to nagging to pornography to full-on adultery. And it all started with those little gestures. And so we return to Shulamith's dream. And you recall that in this dream, she hears Solomon knocking outside her door. She's knocking at the door, rather, calling out to her. He expresses his eagerness to share her bed. And then the story outlines for us what we call the anatomy of apathy. In chapter 5, verses uh, 1 through 8 or 9 or so. And here's what we said the anatomy of apathy was. First of all, we saw she had a poor response. She had a poor response. She calls to him that she's already undressed and ready for bed. She sends the message, go away. She said in verse 3, I put off my garment. How could I put it on? And this is best read in the present tense. I've bathed my feet. How can I soil them? Go away. The next part we saw was we called too little too late. She finally does get up to open to him, but she finds that he's gone. And interestingly, has left liquid myrrh all over the door handle, likely myrrh that he brought for their time together. And then we saw in the third part of the anatomy of apathy, the pain of regaining closeness. Now she's desperate. She goes out looking for him. In her dream and for her trouble, she ends up running into the night watchmen in the city and being assaulted by them. And what did that teach us? It taught us that bad things happen when apathy is acted upon. And then we got to the final part, the final anatomy of apathy, regret and appreciation. In verse 8, Shulamith once again runs into the younger women of Jerusalem and tells them that if they find Solomon to let them know that, that she's sick with love, that she, her heart has changed. And so we've seen the anatomy of marital apathy, but what's the solution? How do we fix this? 
Well, tonight I'd like to show you a sequence of events to avoiding marital apathy. A sequence of events to avoiding marital apathy. This is the key. This is the solution. There's three parts to this logical sequence to avoiding marital apathy. And these will all make sense to you. It's just a logical progression. The first part of the sequence, actions speak louder than words. Actions speak louder than words. Now in her dream, Shulamith has been running around through the city looking for Solomon. She's been mistreated by the night watchman. And now once again, she runs into the familiar characters in the, in the poem, the daughters of Jerusalem. And first she implores them to help her look for Solomon. Look with me at verse 8, chapter 5. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him, I am sick with love. And this is where we left it last time. But these daughters of Jerusalem in this dream, they have a question for her. And that is, why should we go look for him? Why should we? Verse 9, this is the, the daughters of Jerusalem. What is your beloved more than another beloved, O beautiful, O most beautiful among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you thus adjure us? This is sort of like the girls sticking together. Hey, you just sent him away and rejected him. Why do you want us to go looking for him now? Why are you sick with love now? Let's stick together. Let's all be mad at him together. Well, their question is warranted because what has her action communicated? Her action of rejecting his, advance, his advances has communicated apathy, a lack of caring, an uncaring attitude toward his love and even his need for her. In chapter 4, in the honeymoon scene, Shulamith is portrayed as an unlocked door, but now she's bolted shut. She's a door that's been locked on Solomon. And so her actions sent a very clear message of go away. Now, some men may have, might have sat outside the door begging and pleading. Solomon wasn't one of those men. He believed her actions of keeping the door locked and he did what she said. He went away. And so now she's contradicting her actions with her words of regret and remorse. But I do want to point this out to Shulamith's favor. What's unique about this text is that it only deals with Shulamith and her response to her own failure. She's not blame shifting here. There's no excuses. Her actions are laid bare as having betrayed what was in her heart at the moment that Solomon knocked. Indifference, irritation, and apathy. I think it's important that we understand that anyone can say the words, I love you. That's easy to do. This may or may not be true, but what Shulamith is discovering is that her actions have shouted over any words that she might have said. And now the natural consequences of her actions are playing out. I think it's a very important conversation to have with yourself in your own marriage that your actions speak much louder than your words do. I've even given it as an assignment to married couples who are having difficulties that they're not allowed to use the words, I love you, for the next week or two. They must demonstrate, I love you. That's a little bit harder to do. There are those things that we have a habit of doing which tend to push the other away emotionally. And yes, we're called to forgive and to be gracious. But what are those things that you do? What are those actions that you perform that make forgiveness continually necessary. I could just give a very short sample list, giving a grumpy and unvarnished greeting to one another at the end of the day. 
making work for the other one which wasn't necessary. Not making time to talk or to be together meaningfully or as in this case here with Solomon and Shulamith rejecting the loving overtures of the other. Well, sadly, because of sin, we could have an endless list of the ways that we create distance, send the wrong message of apathy through our actions. So it's important you find out what they are. You ask yourself what they are, and if you're really brave, ask your spouse what they are. But here, Shulamith has figured it out. She rejected Solomon. She told him to go away, and she realizes that he received that message loud and clear because he wasted no time. She goes outside the door, and there's just nothing but a puff of smoke. He's gone. Now, keep in mind that this is a dream and it has something in common with, remember, the first dream we saw in chapter 3. What it has in common is that both dreams deal with the subject, with the theme of losing Solomon. Solomon is the one that she loves and Shulamith seems to have a fear of losing him. In chapter 3, the reason for Her losing him is unknown. This is before they're married. And you recall that she imagines that he is in her bed with her as they're close to marriage, but he's gone. And in fact, it's after this dream that she consents to marrying him. She's realized that he's the one love of her life and she's ready to commit. Even though there is that horrible, terrible problem of all of his political marriages, one of which has already happened to Naamah, the Ammonite. And now in this dream, her fear of losing him comes to fruition by means of her own apathy towards him. That if love has lost that spark, that perhaps there will be some distance from that time forward. And so we ought to give her some grace here and that there's certainly an element of insecurity here, especially given the circumstances of the court of Solomon with his political marriages. But we did say last time that in uh, verse 2, he describes himself as as wrought with desire for her. And considering that at this time he probably had 60 wives and 80 concubines, the fact is that he loved her and he didn't go to any of them. He waited for her. And so there is a, there is a devotion there on his part to whatever level is possible in that circumstance. But now her actions have spoken and so her actions are going to have to change in order to give a new message to him. And so now she, now she answers the question that's put to her by the daughters of Jerusalem. Why should we go look for him? Why should we? Why is he better than any other man? The first part of the sequence of avoiding apathy, actions speak louder than words. The second part of the sequence of avoiding apathy, thoughts determine your actions. Thoughts determine your actions. Now she sets about trying to convince the daughters of Jerusalem that her thoughts of Solomon prove that he is her one true love. And in keeping with a major theme of the book, her thoughts revolve around physical characteristics, but we're going to see that that goes far beyond that very soon. But the physical characteristics represent for her the man himself. And so she begins to rehearse pleasant and wonderful thoughts of Solomon to answer the question, why should we look for him for you? And much as Solomon did on their honeymoon, Shulamith begins to describe Solomon's physique, a handsome young man indeed. Verse 10, she describes him, My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. Radiance speaks of the healthy color of his skin. Ruddy 
It, it could be speaking of the color of his skin, red or reddish brown, but uh, more likely there's only one other person uh, nearby in, in this whole sequence of events that has ever been described as ruddy, and that is his father, David. And so it may be a sense of, of her saying, you're as handsome as your father. And she says that he's distinguished among 10,000. In other words, if there were 10,000 men, he's the one I want. He's the only one. He's superior among all men because he's hers. Verse 11, his head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. Finest gold, this may be a reference to skin color. It may just be that, that there's a high value she's placing on him. Interestingly, the word wavy here may actually mean date clusters, but it's the same effect. He has long wavy hair. This verse hurts my feelings, to be honest with you, a little bit, because I remember those days. He has wavy black hair. So there's, there, we, we don't place all of our value on youth, but neither do we uh, push it aside easily as well. And so she's remembering him. And her thoughts are good. And verse 12 is so key. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water bathed in milk, sitting beside a full, a full pool. In chapter 1, verse 15, Solomon said, your eyes are like doves. And that's about all he said. But she says the same thing in overwhelming terms. Glistening, lively eyes. This is the idea of someone who has looked into her husband's eyes for minutes and for hours. Probably paying more attention to the eyes of her husband than he did to hers. What is she doing here? She's recalling the deep, spiritual, mysterious, emotional connection that they shared in their intimate times together looking at one another. And for her, this seems especially meaningful with her need to know that they're completely connected and that she can be secure in his love. Her eyes go downward slightly in her gaze. Verse 13, his cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. When she says his cheeks are like beds of spices, almost certainly speaking of his beard. Leviticus 19.27 required faithful men to wear a beard and he apparently would put some sort of fragrance on his beard when they were going to be together because they were going to be close. And she's remembering this. She remembers what he smells like. She says his lips are lilies dripping liquid myrrh. Uh, Those who take a a, a metaphorical or allegorical view of Solomon, Solomon, this is about the point where they really run into a lot of problems. Because there's, there's no way to make this Christ in the church. This is speaking of his lips and they're wet. There's no other way around this. This is very personal. She's remembering the pleasure she felt with his lips mixed in with the myrrh that they used in their intimate times together. Verse 14, his arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. Verses 14 and the beginning of verse 15 are one unit. It's a poetic and careful description of the entire middle of his body. It speaks of her great value of him and her intimate knowledge of all of his body. She sees him as valuable, gold, jewels, ivory, sapphires, alabaster, sort of like mother of pearl or or marble in appearance. There's no shyness. There's no coyness. She's totally comfortable with his body. But here is a stunning statement. Second half of verse 15. His appearance 
is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. Why is this a stunning statement? This is a great compliment from her because now we get emotional. You remember that Shulamith is from southern Lebanon. When she says his, his appearance is like Lebanon, what is she saying? She's saying, looking at you is like going home. You are home to me. You are familiar to me. You are comfortable to me. She's completely at home with him. And then once again, she returns to the memory of his kisses. Verse 16, his mouth is most sweet and he is altogether desirable. A kiss, especially a meaningful kiss, is a sign of affection and acceptance and unity and love. And she longs for this renewal of their love. Now, in case you might think that she's a shallow and surface woman for only thinking of externals, and you might be saying, well, yeah, if I was married to Mr. Universe, I'd think that too. No, his appearance to her is representative of the true heart of her hearts. And here's the deepest answer to the question, why should we look for him? She's described Solomon's body, and as she's done so, we might picture her looking off into the distance as she imagines him very sensually. But now she addresses the daughters of Jerusalem, looking them in the eye. She says the second half of verse 16, This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. It's not just that Solomon is an incredibly good-looking man. That's going to pass. But more importantly, this is my beloved. This is my friend, my companion, my darling, my one and only. He is the one I want to walk through this life with. Now, what has she done? She's turned her thoughts in a purely positive and lovely direction toward him. She's gone from go away to I am sick with love for him. And how did this happen? all by means of what she chose to dwell on, what she chose to think about. Her thoughts determine her actions. And if her thoughts had been in the right place earlier in the evening when Solomon had knocked in her dream, then none of this would have happened. Yeah, it might be inconvenient that she was all ready for bed, curled up with a good book, a little time for herself maybe, but had her thoughts habitually been for him and for them together and of their love, his knock at the door would have brought a smile, not an eye roll of irritation. I think as we think about thoughts, we're naturally drawn to Philippians 4.8, which may seem like a, a theoretical big picture view of trying to think more godly thoughts, but I think it has a massive impact on us in our relationships and perhaps none so than the marital relationship. You're familiar with this. Philippians 4.8, the Apostle Paul says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, I won't go to the trouble to take apart what all of those words mean, true, honorable, just. We've done that before in other messages. But you get the idea. Think the right thoughts. Think those lovely thoughts. In fact, Proverbs 27, 19 says, As in water, face reflects face, 
So the heart of man reflects the man. In other words, your thoughts reflect the real you. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? So put the thoughts of your spouse in your mind that you want to impact your actions. And by the way, they'll impact your words as well. Matthew 12, 34 says, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Very often I've seen couples in marital counseling and their big problem is that they can't speak to each other correctly. They can't speak with love and kindness. And we always go back to the thoughts. What are the thoughts you're thinking? That's where it's coming from. Your mouth is just showing as a mirror of your heart. So this sequence makes sense to us. The first part of the sequence of avoiding apathy, actions speak louder than words. The second part of the sequence, thoughts determine your actions. And the last part of the sequence, this makes sense, think the right thoughts. Think the right thoughts. That's the solution to apathy. Actions speak louder than words. Thoughts determine your actions. So think the right thoughts. Chapter 6, verse 1. The daughters of Jerusalem speak again. Where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? Now, this is a completely illogical question. She just asked them, where is he? Now, she's asking, they're asking her, where is he? Well, what does this show? It shows that she's convinced them. It's time to join in the search. Okay, where's the last place you think you might have gone? You've convinced us that your thoughts are correct and that he is the one He is the most beloved. By the way, they call her, oh, most beautiful among women in verse 9 of chapter 5 and then here in verse 1. And that tells us this is kind of a unit. This is where Shulamith has changed. This is where repentance has happened. She has made her thoughts right. Now they're convinced by Shulamith's passion to renew their search with her. Shulamith has successfully altered her thinking This is very useful to us as well because those sinful, degrading, negative thoughts about our spouses are the very thoughts which cause apathy, they cause distance, they cause lack of true intimate connection. This doesn't mean you can't help the other by pointing out sin, by being a source of help for that sin tendency, but it does mean that you can't let this cross over into thinking terrible, demeaning Horrible thoughts as if you deserve better. That's really what it is, is idolatry of self. I deserve better. When you're going down that road, that's a a dark, dark, wicked place to be. As if the focus of your relationship is my life, my happiness, my fulfillment. Now someone might say, well, I trust what I think. If I think it, then it must be true. I'm a good analytical person. The Bible says not to trust what you think. Did you know that? Proverbs 28, 26 says, Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. What does this mean? It means your automatic sinful thinking is not reliable. And it's not the ultimate standard of right and wrong. The wisdom given by God is the standard. I want to ask a very difficult question because this is not something that most people will admit to because it all happens between your ears it all happens inside you but what if you're the one who's been caught in the trap of cultivating the the festering poisonous oozing thoughts against your spouse while trying to outwardly maintain the appearance of love which really can't be sustained in reality what if that's you 
What if you've let that thinking pattern become such a habit that now it's ingrained in you and it comes out as daily criticism. It comes out as daily correction. It comes out in the tone of voice that treats the other like a child. It comes out in a near constant state of exasperation and impatience. It may come out in ridiculous demands that border on perfectionism, standards that no one can possibly meet, where you get to the point where all you're doing is spending your days looking for something wrong. And certainly it's going to come out in a reluctance to fully give yourself to intimacy or to be all present. What do you do if this is you and you know in your heart that that's you right now? What do you do? Well, first of all, you ought to set aside a time of genuine prayer and repentance. A time of genuine prayer and repentance. And I don't mean a little, Lord, please help me with this prayer. This is more than just a careless thought here and there. If this is a habit, if this is a pattern, then it's time to drop to your knees. And it's time to acknowledge to the Lord that you have been maybe saying the right things with your mouth. Maybe you've been able to to have enough self-control to not let what is really in your heart make it out your mouth. But you know what's going on inside and you know that it's sinful and that it's not pleasing to the Lord. That's the genuine starting point of repentance, is setting aside that time of prayer. The second thing you ought to do if you know in your heart this is you, you ought to make a plan to more effectively direct your thoughts in the spirit of Philippians 4.8. You have to plan this. You can't just wake up one morning and say, I think I'll think differently today. That's not going to work. You have to be more proactive. It might mean setting aside a small time every day to list what you love about your spouse, maybe even to write them down, to repent for all the negative sinful thoughts you had toward him or her from the previous day, to pray thankful prayers each and every day for your spouse in detail and in gratitude. It's sad to me that I've had sometimes couples in my office and I'll ask one to pray a thankful prayer for the other one and they, and they are so out of the habit of being thankful that they can't think of one thing to say. So you ought to set aside a time of genuine prayer. You ought to make a plan to more effectively direct your thoughts. And third, you ought to identify the ways that apathy is acted out in your life. You ought to identify the ways that apathy is acted out in your life, the ways you push away your spouse, the way you say, go away. And I know this is hard, but you might need your spouse's help with this because it might be a habit so ingrained you don't realize it anymore. But humble yourself and take the correction and then begin repenting of those ways that act out apathy because what? Actions speak louder than words. And build new habits and draw near on purpose. This is a very powerful lesson for us on keeping marriages where God would have them. Actions speak louder than words. Thoughts determine your actions. Think the right thoughts. But here's where the passage just gets absolutely delightful. Remember, Shulamith has been dreaming. And so we can sort of give her a pass for this whole thing. We asked the theological question a couple of weeks ago. Can you be held responsible for sins in your dreams? I don't know. They're probably a little less so than a purposeful act in your waking moments. She's apparently fearful of losing Solomon, but at what point does she awaken from her dream? 
Well, the most likely point is right here at the end of verse 1. Verse 2, My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. She's awakened. Solomon is in her bed with her. They're married. Perhaps he's asleep and the the memory of recent intimacy floods her reality. My beloved has gone down to his garden. This is the same language as their honeymoon. They are united. They are together. Her fears are unfounded. He's right there. And although Solomon by now has these political marriages, he's there with her. And she revels in the mutual ownership of one another, the unique, mysterious oneness of marriage. Verse 3, I am my beloved's and my beloved's, my beloved is mine. She's relieved that the fear of losing him is only a dream. But even in her dream, she's taking responsibility for having pushed him away. And once again, like a Christmas carol, wouldn't it be great if our most sinful moments were lived out in a dream and you could repent and do the right thing in real life? Well, guess what? Now she has the opportunity to live out what she messed up in the dream. The end of verse 3, she says, He grazes among the lilies. The language here is very clear. Now he is approaching her for real. And at least for this moment, now the curtain comes down on a happy ending in which she's now willing and eager to keep the fire of their love alive and well. I really want to make sure we understand the lesson here. What can we learn from this close call? It really was a close call, a sinful moment characterized merely as a dream. I'd like to give you three lessons just to drive this home one last time. Lesson number one, focus primarily on your own sanctification. Focus primarily on your own sanctification. We've said this before, but the hundreds and hundreds of couples I've seen in marriage counseling, they all come in with two fingers this way, pointing at the other one. Every time. And in my snarkier moments, I have taken a finger and actually pointed it at somebody at themselves. They don't like that. Sometimes they pop it back. No, no, it's you. In this whole episode, Shulamith doesn't blame Solomon or try to make anything his fault. She evaluates herself. She evaluates herself only. Part of the Christian life is a constant attitude of self-evaluation. I don't mean waiting for your conscience to kick in or not. That's, that's passive. But what I mean is comparing your attitudes and your actions to what the law of Christ, what the New Testament would have us to do. If your conscience doesn't bother you, that's not necessarily a good indicator. That just means your conscience is a little bit rusty at times. You compare your actions to the Word of God. And I understand if you're terrified of self-evaluation, But being afraid of self-evaluation is an insidious form of self-righteousness, of pride, of self-exaltation. Avoiding self-evaluation is like avoiding a little pain now to keep from a lot of pain later. And this is regardless of whether or not your spouse chooses to do the same thing. Very often there seems to be a deal we want to make. Yeah, I'll evaluate myself if you evaluate yourself. No, no deals. You walk righteously before the Lord. I promise you, you won't make your marriage worse by focusing only on yourself. 
and you will most certainly honor Christ. So lesson number one, focus primarily on your own sanctification, just like Shulamith did. Lesson number two, move beyond emotion to genuine reaching out. Move beyond emotion to genuine reaching out. Shulamith had another option. She could have gone to the door and gotten that myrrh all over her hands and just gotten irritated and angry and began to blame him. Well, how dare he do this? Well, why did he knock on the door so late at night? Didn't he know I was already in my pajamas? I've already washed my face. My feet are clean. Everything's ready for bed. I've got a good book. I've got a fire going here. The cat's at the end of the bed. I don't want any part of this. And look, he got my hands all messy. And she could machine gun him with blame and just drive a grand canyon of distance between them. That could have been what she had done had she followed her emotions. I don't know if anybody's ever left a, a myrrh trap for you where you are suddenly got a bunch of junk all over your hands. I don't think she went, oh, isn't that sweet? But she didn't follow her emotions. You can't wait until you feel like it. You can't wait until it seems right to reach out to the other when there's distance between you. Shulamith ran out into the street, even in their own danger, to try to find Solomon. Yes, she could have made the argument that he was inconsiderate by coming to her practically in the middle of the night, but it didn't matter. She sought after him anyway. She went after him. There was no pride of, well, I'm right, and he can come groveling to me. And third lesson, I hit this earlier, but it's worth mentioning again. Your thoughts determine your closeness. Your thoughts determine your closeness. You cannot have true unity as long as you cherish and hide and cultivate and feed and water thoughts that are overly critical, unforgiving, demanding, demeaning. And do you really want to walk through your life that way? Here's the fantasy that I think a lot of people entertain, that if I am critical enough, and if I am demeaning enough, and if I think negative thoughts enough, the other person is suddenly going to have this shift And they're going to come on their knees and say, I realize, oh exalted one, that I am the worst human being of all time. And I am so thankful just to be in your delightful presence. I grovel at your feet. I kiss the dirt around your toes. And that's what we'll do for our whole marriage. That never happens. That's never what happens. I don't know if you've ever thought about what you would answer if somebody asked you, what would you eat if you had one more meal on this earth? Let me ask you a much more important question. What would you think if you had one more thought about your spouse? What would those thoughts be? Now, whatever those are, have those every day. Have those every day. I read recently of a widow of a police officer who was shot and killed in so many of those tragedies in the past couple of years that she was tormented by the fact that their last interaction had been a terrible fight before he went out on his tour of duty and was shot and killed. From a human standpoint, we can see the tragedy of that unfinished business, but let's take this to a more eternal, heavenly level. As believers in Christ, don't we want to honor our Savior? That's the whole point of marriage, is to honor our Lord. And our Savior has made us to be close and to be reliable and to cherish one another, to be servant-hearted, to be patient in our marriages, to draw near to each other. And so we honor our Savior, Jesus Christ, 
by cherishing this other person. How do we do that? Actions speak louder than words. Thoughts determine your actions. So what? Think the right thoughts. It's an act of worship ultimately as certainly as showing up to church and singing a hymn. It is absolutely an act of worship. Well, let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for this text which is so clear to us to help us to remember to cherish this one we have. Lord, for those yet to be married among us, Lord, we pray that these lessons would drive themselves deeply in their hearts for that day that we would pray that a a spouse would come along by your will. For those who have been married for a very long time, Lord, I pray that there would be a renewed spark of fire and joy and interest in one another, of love that is so deep and so rekindled and so cherished that every day is is a gift. Every day is a treasure. For those a little bit closer to their, the beginning of their marital journey together, Lord, I pray that they would not waste time in harboring bitterness and horrible thoughts and letting that distance fester, but to always draw near, to humble ourselves, Lord. For there is a greater, even greater gospel cause for this. As the church is filled with marriages that are pleasing to you, This makes for strong families. Strong families make for a strong church. And a strong church makes for a strong gospel impact in the world. And so we pray, Lord, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the spread of the good news of Jesus Christ, that it would begin literally in our minds, in the privacy of our homes, yes, even of our bedrooms, that you would make us those who willingly and lovingly follow after you in every way possible, being conformed to the image of our dear Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.